Are you ready to go off script? Let's see how the Bible challenges the roles the world has written for us. The 19th century philosopher Frederick Nietzsche believed that our desire for success, money, or love really went back to our will to power, whereas other philosophies focus on calibrating our internal state to accept reality, Nietzsche focused more on conforming reality to our desires. Although it's terribly out of fashion today to admit one desires and pursues power, this counterfeit God, let me assure you, is alive and well. We can get so involved with a political party, a social justice issue, or advocating some cause that we begin to live for it rather than God. We seek to make the world better, and this often takes heroic sacrifice and commitment, which in turn can easily lead to removing God from the throne of our hearts and even defying how he says to live in the process. The solution is not to divest ourselves of power, but to submit our wills to God. Humility is the way God can redeem our influence for his purposes. For example, in his earthly ministry, Jesus was powerful, but he did not let it go to his head. Instead, he constantly recognized that God was the source of his words and works. In the end, God exalted Jesus, bestowing on him a name that is above everyone else. This is our example. Here now is Offscript Episode 26, Worshiping Power. Today we're talking about a very important subject, worshiping power. So in preparation for this, I've been thinking about Friedrich Nietzsche and his concept, will to power, because it seems to come up a lot when we discuss, or when people discuss this kind of a subject. And essentially what he was arguing for, so much as I can tell, is the idea of self-expression, asserting yourself over against whatever might be in the way. So traditionally, a lot of different philosophies have throughout time have emphasized control with respect to the internal state. So for example, the Stoics would say you need to train your mind to go with the logos, which is sort of the fate or the flow of events of the universe and not fight against it or the Buddhists would argue against attachment, and various other philosophies would essentially argue that you need to gain control of your internal state so that no matter what happens in the external world, you're, gonna, you're, you're okay with it. With Nietzsche, what we have is the idea of like, well, forget all that. What about reality? Maybe you need to make your internal state, maybe you need to express that in reality and achieve what what it is you're trying to do. In other words, gain more power. And that's really what the driving force is behind humans. It's not necessarily a desire for happiness per se, as much as it is a desire to exert yourself, uh, reach your full potential, express the true you. And so you can see how that would today, however many hundred years later, still be a very attractive ideal. But I think what we see with this is, from a Christian perspective, a very interesting interplay. Because what is what does Christianity say? It does not say detach yourself from all external reality. It does not say build an empire and conquer the earth. 
it says that we have to trust in God. But as I look at power within the scriptures, for example, like First Timothy 1, 7, it says that God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So like God empowers us. So there's like a power to be had. It's not like we're the Christian position is arguing against power, but it's a power in line with what God's will is for the world and for us as well. So that's kind of like how I'm, I'm sort of like roughly sketching this out here. So I don't know. What do you guys think about this? I think it's interesting that one of the first things that God said to humanity uh, was to have dominion and to subdue the earth. So from the very beginning, God hands humanity um, an element of power, an element of control, but it's for a positive thing. And it's not simply for humanity to go out and pursue um, their own means, although they had great enjoyment of what was in the perfect unspoiled creation at the beginning. But it was really to be stewards for God on God's behalf. When I think of the Christian point of view on this subject, I think of the power of the cross itself. Mm. Think of children, for example, want to express their will, is to force or coerce others to do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Like my five-year-old Wesley will come up to me. If I'm talking to someone else, he will grab my face with both hands on either cheek and, and, and direct it to his face because he knows that, like he probably did talk and I didn't hear him. So then he's like, he's, he's going to physically turn my attention to him or he's going to grab my leg or somehow he's going to assert himself over over me as we get older we get more clever about it like we know manipulation is wrong most of us so we, we talk about convincing people or persuasion or rhetoric but this these are some of the most ancient schools of thought ancient lawyers in particular they studied rhetoric and what was rhetoric is the art of persuasion i mean this Mm. is one of the most ancient fields of knowledge in human existence why was that well it's because the greeks came came upon the idea of democracy and when you have a dictator you don't need to convince anybody you just say the way it is when you have a democracy now you need orators championing a a particular political cause Mm. arguing against other competing ideas of what to do and now you have this whole idea of rhetoric flourishing so you have the sort of like bald face power which i'm picturing with my five-year-old okay (laughs) and then you have the more subtle adult versions of that Mm -hmm. using our words to essentially bend people to the reality we wish to pursue that we think is better for everyone or at least better for ourselves and then you have what christ does on the cross which is which is utterly different because it it woos you it doesn't push you it pulls you. It gives before it takes. The person who's trying to convince you to, to sign up some sort of petition, they want you to give your name to their petition. They want you to give money to their cause. And then they're going to promise that down the road, they'll enact policies that will make your life better. With, with Christ, is the exact opposite. He gives everything to us first. And then if we choose it, if we accept it, that then changes our hearts and we receive it, and then we want to follow him. Because there's a power structure there. We call him Lord, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. But it's really different. It's, it's almost like turning power on, on its head. Well, it's, it's reverse karma. If the idea of karma is you get what you deserve and you get what you put in, Jesus got what you deserved. And that's the pulling mm-hmm. effect. That's the gravity of his sacrifice and the power of the cross. I like that word gravity. Mm. It's just kind of like pulling on you. you. You feel the tug of it. But it's, it can be resisted. 
In a weird way, he respects that. I say it's a weird way. It's like, even if we resist to our own hurt, he still gives us that dignity or that choice. Going to the cross, there's an amazing commentary on that in Philippians. And like he said, Sean, how it was so backwards, what Christ did for us on the cross, going through the humility and the suffering, going to being glorified. Paul says in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you have the humility, but then it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You go from, you know, the depth and the humiliation to the great exaltation through God the Father. And it's unbelievable the way God chooses to do things which are so counter and intuitive to our human minds. This reminds me of a parabola. Yeah. Right? Where Christ begins at this incredibly high position in the form of God, whatever that means. And then he he descends way down to the form of a servant, a slave. And then he dies the death of a slave on mm-hmm. the cross. And then God highly exalts him as he climbs back up in status. But he gets exalted more than when, where he started out, too, because mm-hmm. now he's at God's right hand. He's absolutely, unquestionably the one that God has invested this immense power in because it says... He bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, as you just read, Rose. Uh, So it's really a paradoxical view of power. So I'm like, I'm trying to figure out, like, what is the Christian doctrine of power? It's not coerce others to think what you want them to think. It's not persuade them. I mean, not that persuasion is bad, per se, but um, it's, it's sort of like you humble yourself and you come underneath them and lift them up, or at least offer to lift them up. And then if and if somebody says, I'm not interested, this is really weird, I'm uncomfortable, then you say, okay, well, I'll be here if you're interested. Mm. You get a sense, at least I got a sense, when you stand next to somebody that is massive, or somebody that's very tall, of, of the power of their, their physicality, mm-hmm. right? You get a sense of somebody's power that's very attractive. You know, like you can almost have like a celebrity effect. Mm-hmm. There is this allure, there is this draw that some people have, or charisma that certain. You know, we, and we yeah. we have all these these kinds of expressions of power. And the question is, like, how do we not divest ourselves of whatever powers we have to whatever degree we have them? But how do we use them for God's purposes in a way that is godly and not coercive? The example that Tim Keller uses in the in the Counterfeit Gods book that we're working through here in this series is fighting for a political cause. Mm-hmm. Whether you're fighting for a political cause or you're sort of like getting high off the looks that people give you when you wear a certain kind of clothing or whatever kind of power we're talking about here, there is an allure to sort of like the dark side of power where you're so wrapped up in the cause that... It suddenly takes God off the throne of your own heart, and it becomes what you sacrifice for, what you're willing to die for, what you're willing to live for. This mindset has afflicted our age so much since the writing of this book. So I think this, what year did this book come out? 2009? 
Yes, this book came out in 2009. So it was right, right when Obama was elected. Right when Obama was elected. So that's Obama versus McCain, John McCain? McCain and Obama. The first time or the in second 08. time? Yeah, Palin, McCain, and Obama. Biden, Biden. in 08. And then what was it in 12? Uh, Mitt Romney. Romney. There was a bunch of mm-hmm. them. Okay, yeah. So you had McCain and then Romney were the two yeah. But it was Republican. Essentially, obviously, Challengers. Republican and Democrat. And <laughs> right. Democrats won twice. Right, so... What's so fascinating about it is the way Keller talks in this chapter, it sounds like he's talking about Trump versus Clinton, and he's really talking about Obama versus McCain, or whatever the action was in 2008. Can I read it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. This is from page 99, which is such a good page. In 2009, Tim Keller wrote, This may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. Sounds familiar. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that was once reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. I mean, how often have you seen that? Yeah. How often have, have, has somebody said to you, if we don't stop X from getting into office and using like the fear tactics, then the whole country is going to fall apart and the world's going to be ruined. Mm-hmm. You know, like the sky's falling almost. Yeah. Before that excerpt, Rose, that you read, he starts out this section saying... One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but rather, this is the end. There's no hope. And bringing back to the Bible, a good example of this is, is Saul and David, where Saul was king over Israel, and David began to have great success on the battlefield. And... When David came back to the city and the women are in the streets singing, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul is, is threatened by that. And he turns against David and he tries to kill him. And then that sets off the rest of 1 Samuel, where basically Saul is, is running around trying to kill David. Saul was fearful that his power was threatened by David. And his power was a counterfeit god to him. And that's what ultimately drove him to destruction. So that's, that's a kind of power that he sort of like became subservient to and that ended up dominating him and becoming a god, lowercase g. Yeah, well, all, all rulers are afraid of losing their power. I mean, that's why you see in Africa people uh, in power extending their, their term limits over and against what the people want. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that in the Congo right now. That's why you see any dictator throughout history the world over forcing their the people that are in power want to remain in power and in this example of saul he was threatened by david so we tried to eliminate him so at the base root of this whole thing this is what keller says in his book is fear fear of losing power and that drives people to do things that are against god and ultimately lead to not only their destruction in many cases but their people's destruction i think throughout history christians as Christians, we've really struggled with political power in particular. Mm. Mm. If you look over the the history of church-state relations, what you'll see is this constant back and forth where the government will exert its authority over the church and like force everyone to conform or, or, or be exiled or, or jailed or fined, or like you see with Islam, certainly, 
even killed in some some cases. And then sometimes when the church tries to take over the government and exert itself, and there is this power struggle throughout Christian history. And so the, the question is, well, like, what is that? And what does the example of Jesus have to teach us about all this? I think that's man perverting the purpose of the gospel. And a defining motif in of faith is free will. Without free will, there isn't faith. And so when governments or churches function as governments and, and, and force people to and coerce people to believe a certain way or to do a certain thing, I mean, that flies in the face of, of the free will doctrine that, that is so imperative to faith. So this is a quote from Charlemagne from the um, 8th century. He says, If any one of the race of the Saxons hereafter concealed among them shall have wished to hide himself unbaptized, and shall have scorned to come to baptism, and shall have wished to remain a pagan, let him be punished by death. So that's when the church has infiltrated the government and is sort of like using the government to enforce missionary policies. So you can either convert because we conquered you politically, you can convert religiously, or we're going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's how bad it's gotten. I mean, there's this all too common impulse within us, I think, as Christians to, to think to ourselves, if we were in charge, we, we could do such a better job yeah. running the world. And I think we have to repent of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In Colossians 2.8, Paul wrote a very simple sentence that simply goes against um, a lot of this bureaucracy and, and power-mongering that the church has found himself into. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I think these are instances of uh, the church and of, you know, Christians, um, I'm using air quotes here possibly, looking at the way that the world did things, looking at the philosophy and the systems of the world, and then either copying and pasting that into the church or trying to create some sort of union. And when you do these things according to human tradition, human philosophy, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not after Christ, you can end up with a very perverted um, and very harmful system that can do a lot of hurt to the gospel and a lot of hurt to the reputation of Christ and his followers. So is that the reason why you would say a Christian should not try to take over the governments of the world because <laughs> of the potential hurt we could cause? I mean, why, why is it wrong? I mean, somebody's got to be in charge. I wouldn't say if you... Um, if your motivations are wrong, I, I don't think it's wrong to run for political office. I think that's something you have to keep in check. But I do believe separation of church and state is important. And if you if you have any delusions that you are you know bringing the kingdom now or anything like that, or you will set up the theocracy that will work, I think you have to step aside from that. Like Christ is the king. You are not going to be ruling in his place. I want to get a little more clarity on this because I don't know what direction political trends are going, to be honest. Dan, you would know a lot better being a journalist, but it seems to me that in my short life, I've seen increased polarization. This is just my personal opinion, but what I, what I, one of the greatest things about America, so far as I can tell, is other than humanitarian aid and, and you know, freedom and that kind of stuff, but like really one of the greatest things is the peaceful transfer of power from mm-hmm. one president to another, especially when it is going from one political party to the other. Having a legacy of however many times, 45 times of doing that is absolutely something we should be extremely proud of because mm-hmm. in many countries that doesn't happen. So 
I believe that before I die, that it looks like that's not going to be the case anymore. It looks like people are going to take to the streets, and there and there there are going to be armed rebellions. I mean, if if we extrapolate out, unless we're just like in a mm-hmm. bubble right here, and it's just like the Trump effect or something. But what is the Christian to do in these kinds of tumultuous times, or if people are taking to the streets? Because honestly, we all think that if our point of view, whatever it is, was the one that was enforced over all the others, that the world would be a better place. Like, why else would we have our point of view that we have? (laughs) Right? Because we think it's the best. Like, what can we do? What should we do? What should we not do when it comes to political causes? What do you think? I'm not saying we can stop the tide of what seems to be disturbing political trends, um, but I think you should do the Jesus thing and make friends all over the place, including friends um, of people who have lifestyles and you know political viewpoints as well that differ radically from yours. I think you can stop the polarization by reaching out in friendship across you know quote unquote enemy lines, go to the other side of the aisle and and be someone that doesn't put people into boxes um, or you know draw friendship boundaries based on you know things like people's political persuasions or their ideologies. Show that your ideologies are not your gods by embracing people regardless of their ideologies. And then you know, with the love of the gospel, um, as Christ did, tell them what you believe and what your convictions are, but in a, in a loving and humble way. Yeah. Without prognosticating about which direction we're, we're headed in as a country politically, because I think that's uh, dangerous, but I don't think there's any denying that the last two elections presidential elections have been more fraught than any elections in our recent history. Uh, I think part of that is that there's been a shift from rational discussion about politics and more to a, um, not only that your opponent and Keller mentions this in his book, but not only that your political opponent is, is wrong, but they're also evil. There's a tendency to, there's been a tendency to demonize the other really dehumanize them. I mean, if you look at some of the language that was used in this past election in particular, there's some truly nasty things said uh, on both sides. We, I think we are seeing a shift to more extreme ends of the pole, of the political pole. As Christians, I would say that we have to follow the example of Christ who used radical love to disarm his opponents. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of turning the other cheek in that parable or whatever you want to call it that he gave, that was a literal example, I feel. But I think in our discourse, political discourse, it's metaphorical where somebody insults you and you don't insult them back because people that engage in political discussions, whether it's person in person or on Facebook or wherever, they're ex- fully expecting you to come out with as much antagonism, vitriol that they bring to the table. So when you push back against that and you don't go down that road and you still get your point across, whatever that point may be. Mm-hmm. I think it brings the discourse to a higher plane where people in general don't want to come back at you with more vitriol and more, mm-hmm. you know, hate. They're like, well, this person is, is, is actually trying to, to reach me and to engage with me. Mm-hmm. And they're respectful. Like, let me return the favor and, and let's have a good discussion here. That, I've, I've noticed that, that that works for me and I don't discuss politics much, but having Christ as our example of seeing people as, as humans, as flawed, as and, and trying to reach them where they're at, loving them with a radical love, Christ-like love, is the way to counteract the heightened emotions that come with talking politics these days. Yeah, agreed. That's the Christ thing to do, to absorb the hostility and being reviled, not to revile back. Yeah. Let that end with you, and other people will notice that too, because I think they might expect it, you know, to bounce off like a hard wall. You're like, 
you know, the back of a room with good acoustics. It's not going to bounce off you. It will end with you. And it stands out. Mm-hmm. Keller writes on page 110, human beings have very little real power over their lives. 95% of what sets the course of their lives is completely outside their control. This includes the century and place they are born in, who their parents and family are, their childhood environment, physical stature, genetically hardwired talents, and most of the circumstances they find themselves in. In short, all we are and have is given to us by God. We are not infinite creators, but finite dependent creatures. And I think this mindset is something that we all too often overlook, especially those of us who achieve much in life. We want to look down on people and say, oh, you're just so lazy, right? And you don't recognize that so much of what allows for success in our complicated world today is having two parents or having Mm -hmm. access to education or living in a neighborhood where you don't have to join a gang for protection. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much that goes into the very, and whatever kind of success we're talking about, a lot of it can be related to genetics, especially when it comes to athletics. There's so much that goes into it beyond just our our drive and our resolve. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think we do well to remember that. Mm. We're not always masters of our own destiny. Mm you got to work hardly into the Lord, but then just be thankful to God every day for what you have because you really, you stand on the parents on, on the shoulders of your parents. So do we all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, privilege is a real thing and many kinds of privilege. You can be privileged many times over and that can happen to you in, in the church. However, you know, wherever your position may be, the cross is the great equalizer. We were all equally in need of that and we're, whatever socioeconomic situation you were born into um, and then you find yourself as an adult the cross was equally needed. All of our accounts, were, we were totally bankrupt um, in sin before Christ came along and, and gave us all a living hope that we have now. I'd like to make one last point. I think throughout the Bible, God uses his people to operate within systems of power, within governments to further his will. So you look at um, Moses and Pharaoh, you look at Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, you look at Esther and King Ahasuerus where these people are called to save their people within these uh, systems of power. I don't know that you really see God calling his people to be a part, to join that system of power to enact his will. Because I think in legislating God's will into practice is the opposite of how God reaches people. And people do not like to be coerced. It turns people off to the grace of God's gospel. And I personally believe that you you know that you really have to question and be called by God to serve in a political system. It's not something that you just kind of do. That's where I can't come down on that on, on that side of the issue that it's got to be a, an exception to the case. Really cool, Dan. I um, also think it's amazing how Christ worked His will and affected so many governments by never participating in them. It says, it really talks about the power of the cross um, in Colossians 2. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We see... um, the old law um, going and being replaced with something that was so much better. And we see it so much in Christ, uh, who never never ran for office, even had very little political commentary, such a change in him. And it says, disarming rulers and authorities, governments will rise and fall, but Christ will one day become his king. 
Yeah, and whatever your position is on participating in government, I know we can all agree that Jesus claims first authority, that our allegiance has to be to the kingdom of God and to the king, which is the one God has anointed for that role, Jesus. So if our allegiance is to him over any other nation, political party within a nation, or social cause advocating a particular issue— then we can see people who dif- differ on what policies are good for whatever the situation is, but also name the name of Christ as our brothers and sisters, even if they live in another country, even if their country is at war with our country, even if they're a Democrat and you're a Republican, even if they are apolitical and you're super political, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, if allegiance to Christ is first, then we have an international family of brothers and sisters who are commit can be committed to each other in a way that transcends all of the other petty stuff. I mean, not that mm-hmm. it's all petty. Some of it's not petty, like fighting against human trafficking, for example. I mean, that's that's a, that's an atrocious reality in our world, and people should fight against that. It's not petty at all. But at the same time, if somebody doesn't feel called to participate in that advocacy or in that freedom movement, then they're still a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe they're focused on something else. When we talk about allegiance to Christ and keeping him as king, we're also talking about allegiance to love. That's what needs to sit on the throne of our heart is love. And as you said, Sean, and that transcends all national boundaries, all skin colors. And, and I think that's a more practical way of looking at it because, yeah, you can, you can disagree with somebody on a political level, but still love them. And you're still keeping Christ on the throne through that love, by not being unloving, by not engaging in very harsh and and divisive rhetoric, your allegiance to Christ is allegiance to love and allegiance to humanity and loving other people the way Christ loved. What do you think about this poem of W.E. Henley who wrote, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. To me, that is absolutely deluded. I love it from a literary standpoint, but I mean, we just talked about privilege earlier. Mm. We live in an interconnected world. We live in society. We live in community. First of all, we know that that's not a realistic um, way to look at yourself, but also if everyone was to be the master of their fate and the captain of their soul, how would the fates be bumping up against each other and destroying each other? And how have That's they? impossible. And they have throughout right. history. Yeah. This is a recipe for war. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we, we learn in the Bible where it says the man who, who is so self-satisfied with himself and is the captain of his own soul and has so much laid up for him. And he says, oh, what should I do now? I'm going to tear down my barns and, and, and build them up bigger. And Jesus said that God looks at that and says, you fool. Tonight your soul shall be required of you. Mm-hmm. If, if you take that point of view, which which I regard that poem as more than a touch of arrogance. Hubris. Yeah. <laughs> it totally discounts how you can have your world rocked in the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. As Rose said, it, it sounds literary and wonderful. And I could picture that like somebody getting a tattoo of that. <laughs> but in reality, that's not how life works. Right. Well, for, for too many, that is how life works because they're, they're, they're like my five-year-old exerting them, their own wills and oppressing others. We're all tempted to think that if our cause could just hold sway over the culture, over the society, then the world would be a better place. And the fact is, many times, even well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians, there's not like one policy that's going to fix whatever the issue is. The world is so complicated. 
There are so many times where somebody's going to get left out or over-legislated, so then paralysis results. If you're into it, go for it, but like, don't define yourself by that cause, mm. whether it's a social justice cause or a political cause. So yeah. Define we, yourself by Christ. Right, and so we're called to this inversion of power, which is where we say, God is great, and, and I'm just a human, I'm a finite human being, and I need him to help me to see which way to go. And we can have power, legitimate power, but it's, it's when we're in the service of his will, not our own little kingdoms. You know? I'll close with this, because Keller, uh, Keller addresses this in his book, thinking of solutions as, as a political solution, as a solution to a problem. He, he talks about a Dutch-Canadian philosopher named Al Walters, who taught that in the biblical view of things, the main problem in life is sin. And the only solution is God and his grace. The alternative to this view is to identify something besides sin as the main problem with the world and something besides God as the main remedy. That demonizes something that is not completely bad, i.e. power, and makes an idol out of something that cannot be the ultimate good. Thank you so much, guys. As always, feel free to join the conversation and let us know um, what you think the Bible has to say and what you think God most wants from you uh, regarding um, our view of power. I'm going to say goodbye in Turkish this week. Gule, gule. Well, I hope you found that discussion worthwhile, and I hope that it got you thinking about this important subject. We didn't really bring this out very much, but anyone involved in leadership is really exerting a, a type of power. Those of you out there who are leaders, this is an important subject to work through for you as well. But anyhow, moving on, next week we're going to look at worshiping God. We've looked at worshiping love, worshiping money, worshiping success, worshiping power. Now it's time to think about worshiping God. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for tuning in to this. And if you think this episode can help other people, please share it on social media so that other people can find out about Offscript and Restitudio, the podcast. I hope to see you online at restitudio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.